everybody. This is Keith Rainwater with the Designated Drummer Podcast, and I am up here in Canada once again in front of a, a friend of mine that I have just actually met recently, Paul Dickinson. And you are a drum maker, drum manufacturer, not drum manufacturer, well, kind of drum manufacturer, yeah, manufacturer, but you make drum kits and sell them to high-end drummers and all that kind of stuff. And, yeah. And I, you, I have to say, you... Uh, hold like kind of like a fantasy of that I've had for years because I'm a maker, a woodworker and a drummer and I have always wanted to make drums. I mean, why would you not want to do that? Right? Course, because yeah. if you're a maker, a woodworker and a drummer, it just seems like a natural uh sort of, you know, transition or a, a natural thing to do. But I have not yet done that, but I had thought about it, and thought about it, and thought about it forever. So I'm fascinated to talk to you about your process and your uh, how you do it and how you make kits and your thought process and yeah, sure. some of the experiences yeah. you've um, kits you've made and stuff like that. And I want to talk about your cherry bomb snare too uh, later when we get more into it because sure. you are known for that, right? That's kind of like there's one, one sitting, right there, sitting yeah. right there, yeah. The cherry bomb snare. Yeah. I want to talk about that and why it's become such a thing, you know, like why it's so sought after and all that. But we'll talk about that. Yeah. Um, and you have been playing drums actually. You're a drum player. And you sort of transitioned into drum maker um, and all that uh, at some point in your career. I want to talk about how that happened and all that kind of thing and what sure. made what what drew the the maker out of the player, you know, <laughs> or mm. something. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And so we're here uh, in your shop, which is amazing here. It's like, it, it gives me hope because this is a 10 by 10. Is that right? Yeah, pretty much. 10 yeah. by 10 shed in the back of your home. And you have everything in here. It's yeah. amazing. I was just looking around. You have stock up on the upper shelves. You have hardware. You have shelves of hardware. You have raw materials. You have drums. It's everything in here. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Even a little sanding table over there, which I'm totally jealous. I like, yeah, the, the, the turntable, yeah. It's, uh, it looks like a pottery. It used to be a pottery thing that is now a sanding table, right? Actually, you know, I had a, uh, there's, there's a friend of mine who, um, just a genius. With He was a... He built Cobra replicas from scratch, the car. Okay. Oh, so he right. built the body, the electronics, the frame. Wow. So he was one of these uh, super whiz kids. And I just said, you know, I need a table that spins that can, you know, I've got expandable chucks. Yeah, right. That can grab the, the shell. I showed him a couple of videos of different manufacturers. And, uh, you know, one day he shows up and he's got one, you know. I'll be damned. So it, it, it saved me so much time. Right. Like, oh, yeah. Sanding yeah. the rims of the drums. I'm looking over there now, and you have like a floor tom sitting on top of the sanding table. It's, it's it's almost like the size of a coffee table, but it spins around like a pottery wheel. Yeah. And it has a huge round sanding disc on it, and you just lay the drum down on top of the table, and the table spins, and you sand the, the rim, right? Yeah, so, so what I do is I put a sanding disc on top. These chucks right here expand in and out oh, right. to grab the shell so you can have the shell That's spinning cool. and just sand it yeah right sand the bearing edges so it's oh, very consistent it. yes but then i've drilled a couple holes uh where the chucks go and put that sanding disc on top that's just for flattening the shell to before you start yeah. doing the bearing right, edges. Right. Wow. kind of an oxymoron you need a you know a square shell you know round shelves so you do yeah it needs right. to be squared up before you cut your edges and yeah. well, so i want to go back to your early days you and i have been playing drums for about the same amount of time 40 years 40, 40 years, years. Yeah. in the early 80s we started that's when i got out of, i graduated in 81 and you probably similar right 85 for 85 me. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and uh the era of and that was a strange era if, if you'll agree that 
there were some real drums out there, you know, like Jeff Percaro and these great guys playing, but there was so much material on the radio that wasn't real. There right. was all drum machines. The Lynn drum was real popular back then. Yeah. And as you listen to pop radio in 1983 to 85, there were so few, you know, and I make this joke that uh, there wasn't a single real drum recorded in the 80s. Because yeah. <laughs> I, like, I listened to 80s on 8 on, on the satellite radio, and it's like every, almost every song is like, that's the Lynn drum. Yeah. That's a drum machine. That's yeah. a Yamaha, whatever. That's an Oberheim drum machine. You can just tell. Well, you know, and the funny thing about that is, uh, again, you know, just learning how to play with a band and, and hearing all those drum parts that were so strict and so precise. And yeah. that's what I really worked towards. And a lot of you guys... You had to emulate the sound of a drum right? machine yeah. as a drummer, didn't yeah. you? Yeah. Yeah. Not knowing that maybe it wasn't a real drummer. You know, I was just yeah. mostly listening to the tune, loving the tune. And the groove had four on the floor and yeah. a nice strong backbeat. Everything was consistent. So I think in some ways that really helped develop my playing because, you know especially in the studio, the consistency of hitting your drum, same spot every yeah. time, just the velocity so, and right. everything. Yeah. Yeah. So again, without even thinking about it, you know, at 15, 16, trying to emulate some of those drum machine parts, uh, really lent itself to, to consistency and really good time. Sure. Right. Developing a time. So, right. Geez, why am I slowing down or why am I speeding up? Great. Right. Cause the drum machines are so consistent, right? I can see, so, I could totally see an engineer, or a producer in the studio, why they would want that. Because I'm thinking about bringing a drummer in and micing up all the drums and getting them tuned and teaching the song to them and you know, like writing out the chart, all this yeah. stuff. When all you got to do is just have a little programming <laughs> skill, program it in, you've got everything yeah. already plugged into the yeah. board. It sounds great. It's like right off the bat. You yeah. can do take after take and it's exactly the same. I mean, right. like, why would you not want to do that, right? Right. I think it just, at that point, it just comes down to the mojo of the music, the, yeah. the feel, right? Yeah, right. Sure, it's quick. Sure, it's efficient. Uh, it's the same every time, but, you know. And I, dancers, I think, wanted that that sort of, that perfect yeah. drum machine. Thing. Well, it was also coming out of, like, the 70s, like the disco. Yeah. Right? Era, mm -hmm. four on the floor. Drummers would just, you know, land yeah. those really strong grooves down. There wasn't a lot of fills going on. There wasn't a lot of, it was just really to make people dance. Yeah, right. I had heard a story that um, Heart of Glass from Blondie yeah. was the kick drum on that was actually not real. It was synthetic. Oh. And then he had to play all the the fills and the snare and everything else on top of that. And as a matter of fact, I had, the story was is that he had to put a big pillow or something on the kick drum so he could actually play it, oh. but you couldn't hear it. But they had the kick drum was... It was like four on the floor kick drum, but that was like from some drum, um, computer or drum machine or something oh, wow. back in the 70s. And they wanted that to be consistent. So you just got to play everything else around it kind of yeah. thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I look back to the air and just go like, how did that, you know, how did that uh, style form? Do you yeah, know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Like, I don't know, you go through all the different eras. And, yeah. uh, and you and I were right in the, right there. like, yeah. in the forefront of all that stuff yeah. you know learning and trying to make a living as a drummer yeah and all that but i know i approached a lot of music if i did go into the studio i was always very simple and straight and yeah and which worked against me to you know on some level because guys were like no man just loosen up a little bit you know yeah. like i can remember those words of yeah yeah just loosen up a bit yeah but aren't you supposed to play really <laughs> simple and right strong and consistent right yeah so yeah 
So it's yeah. So you grew up. Um, now we're in Burlington, Ontario, right now. Yeah. Where did you grow up around here, or were you from somewhere else in the So area? born in Scarborough, which Scarborough. is part of Toronto, just outside Toronto. Okay. Uh, but moved here when we were one to Burlington, and yeah. So so you've been here the whole time. This whole yeah. So my birthday tomorrow will be fifty six. So right. fifty five years of wow. in Burlington. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah. And uh, so. The, what was the studio scene like? I mean, were there were there actual studios here? Or were they more like downtown Toronto kind of th- places? Uh, I would say in larger city centers. You know, uh, you know Toronto definitely like Mississauga. Yeah, we've got Metalworks out there that's yeah. uh, run by Gil Moore from Triumph. You know, right. Okay. So he's excellent studio out there. Uh, but yeah, I don't. I don't. There's. A uh, pretty prominent studio called B Town Sound in Burlington. Is and there's that right? some B-town great, sound. yeah. I'll some, check that out. Yeah, yeah, five minutes from here. That's cool. Yeah, now, big, I did big a, open room. I did a podcast on the School of Rock in um, Markham, Markham. Okay, yeah. That was School of Rock in Markham. And yeah. uh, that was, oh, you talk about a kid in a candy store. That place, yeah. oh my God. Yeah. You walk in and it's drums everywhere, guitars everywhere, bass everywhere, keyboards everywhere, yeah. practice rooms. It was just like, oh. Yeah, know? right. It was so amazing. And and to see some of the kids that come out of there, the talent, the stuff that they teach. They teach rock music there. I think yeah. That's so cool. It literally is School of Rock. I mean, they teach like, you know, like Led Zeppelin and uh, Rush and, uh, you know, like Aerosmith and that kind of stuff. Well, you so know, cool. like Canada is geographically huge. Yeah. But, you know, Ontario, the province of, it's got 14 million people. Yeah. And, you know, the majority of, I'd say, Canada's uh population yeah or a lot of them live in what's called the gta just this little strip greater from, toronto area yeah, right? yeah yeah gta so great music great musicians yeah. so great. that's music production music sales yeah. and buy and buyer like all your your sales your so people this, that buy yeah. your whole customer base and everything it has to be all kind of right here yeah. i mean i know they do go nationwide all the way across canada but i was told in the early 2000s when I started making videos and stuff like that, that when we tried to get a budget for a video, they were like, oh, the budgets are way low here in Canada because think about it, they don't sell as many records as the Americans do because there's not as many people up here. Right. So, And it all boils down to dollars. Like, uh, And I remember getting a, uh, we got a gold record in, with Lone Star in Canada and was 50,000 copies sold and, and in the states it's 500,000 for right. a gold record yeah. uh, a million is a platinum yeah. uh, and here 500,000 is platinum so and I was like why the and they explained it to me that well there's just not as many record buyers up here so, yeah you know everything's yeah. I think the down. states has got 10 times the population yeah, I think so yeah. yeah we're like 36 million 37 you guys are yeah 360 plus million yeah. so but of course now it's a little different with streaming and all that stuff it's more worldwide now but I right. imagine back in the day when you had at physical records you had to sell and move and ship and sell out of stores and people actually walk out like brick and mortar places. Right. How different, how difficult that would be in Canada to do across the border sales and that kind of thing. Yeah. 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 And, and again, you know, Canada geographically is huge. So even for touring yeah, and the, right. you know, the, like we have, you know, nine major city centers across all of Canada. Right. Yeah. So just touring record sales, whatever. It's just, yeah. Yeah. Not so I want to go back to your drum making. You, yeah. I, I want to know the point to where you switched from because you were a drummer for a long time. You yeah. Know, played in the studio, played live, toured, 
probably right toured around a little bit yeah yeah and that 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 moment when you said okay i think i could make a living at making drums like making drums for drummers yeah like did you start it as a drum tech or something like that or did you Uh, just go like say today's the day yeah you know always always a player uh i think I, i reached a certain point where i was married and we had the first child on the way and bought a house so first thing i thought was oh geez do i need to get a uh, you know, a real, a real job, job. A real job. <laughs> right. And so I did, I, you know, I was playing with my brother-in-law, uh, Kenny Monshaw. He lives down in Savannah now. He's pretty, uh, hardworking guy. He always had work for us, but I just didn't want to be away from home. I didn't well, see, is he a guitar player or something? He's a keyboard, keyboard, uh, keyboard, a singer songwriter. Oh, wow. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so didn't want to be away from the family. And, uh, so yeah, I went out and got a real job. And from day one, absolutely hated it, you know, and spent yeah. the next nine months trying to find a way, a way that, out to dig out of that. <laughs> well, just how could I, how could I make a living with staying in the music business, staying with drumming, but not touring, not yeah. being away from home. And I just thought about this drum business because yeah. I'd always dabbled in buying and selling and yeah. working on drums, ripping them apart, taking the yeah. wrap off, refinishing just for fun. Kind of like, you know, yeah. the way you're thinking. So you've played drums, yeah pretty much your whole life but now you're thinking geez i'd love to because there's like the big three there's either playing drums selling drums or making drums right that's kind of like and you you just thought well i can make these things yeah you you have mad wood skills so yeah Uh, i you know back in the day uh i had drum shops for about 20 years you had drum shops yeah so i always tried to find because you repair and things like that you mean yeah like yeah. uh, lessons and rentals oh, okay, and retail. Yeah. I got gotcha. you. Okay. So under one roof, I had retail out front, the custom shop in the back, a lesson room with 150 students. Wow. Nice. Um, and it was still playing 125 gigs a year. And uh-huh. uh, what year would, it, would this have been geez, for you? Uh, early 2000s. Early 2000s? Okay. Yeah, right, yeah, right. I'd say, yeah, 20, 23 years ago. Yeah. 25 yeah, okay. years ago. Yeah. Um, so I always found these out of the way places to to have the drum shop. So it was I started with in my laundry room of my house, townhouse. Okay. And that moved to the bottom of my doctor's office. He was nice enough to rent me out some space for, you know, hundred bucks nice. a month. Wow. To practice, but yeah. also I started buying and selling out of there. Then to the back of my buddy's paint store, the bottom of a plaza. And said, yeah, just. And like at that time in your drumming career, when you played drums, did you, were you sort of like you were taking drums kits apart and fixing them and repairing them and yeah. modifying them and all that stuff? Were you into that at that time? Totally. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know what, what drew me to that. I mean, I loved, I loved playing, still love playing. Uh, but back then it was just something I just, I love the kind of inner workings of yeah. what made a drum sound good, what didn't make it sound good, you know? Why is it so hard to tune this drum and not so hard to, you know, like, yeah, right. I was pretty inquisitive about like how the drum function. It, it, it's totally basic too, right? Like there's, yeah. it's not like electronics or, you know, the bodies or the neck of a, of a guitar. It's just a drum shell with a bearing yeah. edge with drum heads on it. And, you know, it's pretty simple. It hasn't really changed in over a hundred years, right? Wow. Yeah. Like as far as modern manufacturing goes so i can just see you i can see you like me you know is like you you have to fix something or you have to put new heads on or something i'm just going to take that hardware off there oh look at that inside there those little rubber things and you're just like 
Yeah. They, there must be a reason for the, why they did it that way. Right. Like, why is this an insert and not just threaded in there? Oh, well, it could strip out and, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And so you were probably thinking in your mind, I could totally, I could totally make this better or whatever. Yeah. Or just, I mean, just initially just trying to find out why, yeah. how it why works. They did it right. Yeah. yeah. Because I mean, you know, we, we as drummers, you know, there was a whole transition out of the fifties from calfskin heads to plastic heads, right? Right. Yeah. So, right. you know that that was a that was a big deal because you know the way they used to cut bearing edges. You look at some of the old Gretches and stuff with this outside curve on the bearing edge coming in, and you know the calfskin could form itself to that. Drum. Right. I see. Right? So the yeah okay. So the shape of drum shells were kind of informed by what the heads were made of in a way. Yeah. Or the bearing edges at least, yeah. just the way the bearing edge is, yeah. is cut. Right. Now for those that don't know, bearing edge is the when you look at a drum, uh, the the rim where the where the actual head goes on. There's kind of an angle. There's sort of a uh, there, there's a roundness and sort of an angle that goes down into the drum, and that sort of ke- that sort of pushes the it makes it to where the head isn't just sitting on a whole bunch of wood. It sort of holds it up into little thin things. Off of those that don't know, yeah, the bearing edge, yeah, not a bearing, but it's bearing the weight of the the, the pressure of the drum, right? Right. What they call it, the bearing, exactly. yeah, and bearing the very top point, that's very your, top point, your yeah. apex. Yeah, and there's you know? a science to that. There's a guy in Nashville that just does bearing edges. That's oh, yeah. all he does. Yeah, I believe yeah. it. I believe there. I mean, I again, you know, like Gretsch will use a thirty degree bearing edge, which is a, yeah. a slighter. I mean, this this whole edge is really cut to let the air move through the drum right, right? Yeah. it clears it's that got to vibrate a certain way right. it's got to have a freedom to it and, yes. and then it forms the tone and everything so even steel drums have the same science that goes into the bearing edge and you can see yeah. that that's bent that way and yeah. stuff like that um, and, and that and this outside cut i use a round over because you know the drum heads already have that curvature set into yeah, right. the head again the calfskin formed to the drum yeah we actually have to make a bearing edge that conforms to an already yeah. made curvature of, of the head. And it's for that very reason, what you're saying there, why drummers across Canada and across the U.S. come to you for custom kits, right? Sure. You've, I'd like to think can so. Can you tell us some of the people you've made kits for, or that you've, that some of your kits that are out there? Yeah. Uh, I, I think back in the early 2000s, um, you know, I was trying to boost the brand, and I thought, just give you a quick backstory. Oh, here. and I should probably yeah. mention that it's Udrum. That's your company. Yeah, Udrum. Underground Drum Company. I should have mentioned that in the yeah. beginning, but I didn't. Yeah, that's okay. Um, yeah. Udrum, yeah, yeah. it's your thing. So go ahead. So I wanted to build the brand, and I thought, uh, well, you know, you had a couple of options. You could Modern Drummer Magazine. Back in the day, you know, take out a $2,000 full-page ad, you know, for six months to kind of build the brand awareness. Or I thought I could take that same money and start endorsing uh, bands. So that's right. how I got into uh, picking up some prominent Canadian drummers. So Kim Mitchell, uh-huh, a right. friend of yours, uh, his drummer, uh, Finger Eleven, yeah. um, who at the time that I endorsed him had their top 10 hit. I think it's called One Thing. So I was able to get my drums on like Tonight Show. Wow, and nice. Yeah, so there's some really cool things that happened. And you have there. like a logo that says U-Drum on your, on yep. your kits? Yeah, yep. so so U-Drum is short for Underground Drum Company. Underground Drum Company. Yeah, so uh, yeah, but uh, some of the hardcore bands, Alexis on Fire, Silverstein, uh, Blue Rodeo. Uh, yeah, yeah, so some room. They come to you and they say, we need a great sounding, great looking uh great pop and kit 
Yeah. And you're the guy. Yeah. You're the well, guy they come to. You know, I think the biggest thing is, number one, being a drummer. Yeah. And, and making drums yeah. really, really helps because, sure. you know, when I'm... The first thing I ask is, what you know, what type of vibe are you going for, right? Like, exactly. You can just cut an edge with certain certain type of wood, but, it, it, you know, like some manufacturers are using oak. Oak yeah. cuts like crazy. It's such a hard wood. Yeah. You know, maybe not to the ears is it pleasing, but yeah. cuts through like a rock mix or, you know what I mean? Yeah. So having that knowledge and, and, and being around wood and bearing edges – I can talk, you know, listen to what they yeah. want and what kind of vibe, what band they're playing in, what kind of tour are they doing, and make the suggestions that would get them something that they really like. Right? Yeah, okay. So That's cool. And color and that they just, you know, that's yeah. a part of it too. Because I always tell my students that that kit on stage, when, when you're in the audience, you're a fan and you come out to a show, you're looking up there on stage, the only thing you see really usually is the drum kit to, to inform you of like, what's this band going to be like? What, what's the vibe going to be like? What's the, uh, what am I in for? You look at that drum kit, you kind of get a, a little bit of a sense yeah. of what it's going to be. If it's, you know, like you look at Neil Peart's kit and you're like, Oh wow, man, this is yeah. going to be, or if you look at uh, the Beatles, you know, that, that sort of stripped down kit, you, it's a little more of a mystery about what's, you know, what's that drummer going to be like? Is he going to mm-hmm. slam it harder? Is he going to lay back? But really the drum kit is kind of like your signature, thing as a drummer as yeah. a band even like the band wants to know what's that kick going to look like what yeah. color what is it going to be clear drums is it going to you know the light's going to hit it it's going to people get excited about that yeah yeah that was a yeah you, you brought up a good point because the aesthetics of the drum kit on i mean mm-hmm. you know back in the early 2000s um you know that was the thing like yeah. i was making a, a custom kit or two every week for guys yeah because everybody wanted you know you had the big manufacturers and they had their look and their vibe but the whole thing switched to you know the pop punk thing or the hardcore thing everybody wanted to be an individual so the drum set is such a large canvas on stage that guys were doing stuff that's a great way you put that i like the way you said it's like a canvas Yes. It really is. I yeah. mean, in, in, in every way, in the way you play it, yeah. the way you sit at it, the way you, the way it looks when it's just sitting there, when you're yeah. off stage before you go on. Yeah. It really I, is I, a I love, Yeah. I love yeah. seeing all the different drums. Again, when you go to see a concert, you're looking up and it's like, okay, how are the cymbals set? Yeah. How, does he have a I rock? I can't wait to see not? how he plays that. You right. know, the way that, that right. tambourine over there, that big, huge, what are those things? It's like a kick drum. It's like a floor tom that's, that's mounted gong, high. Gong it's like drum. almost like a boom. Yeah, yeah, the, those the are gong cool. drum. Yeah, the Simon, gong drum. Yeah, Simon Phillips <laughs> was a big advocate for those. We yeah. saw one the other day that this. I want to say he was. I don't remember who he was playing with. Somebody, a big artist. We were multiple act show, and this guy had this. It was a, basically a bass drum that was cut about the first four inches of the bass drum cut off of the bass drum, and it just had the head. It was just basically a little bit of a shell and the head. Oh, okay. And it, had, it was like a twenty-two inch or something, and had it just looked like a bass drum that someone cut. It, you know the top off of mm-hmm. and mounted it stuck a mic on there and i mean when he hit that thing of course the sound man had it mic'd you know to the nines right. when he hit that thing man it was killer it was like doosh, doosh, doosh. It and, was, and that's you know that's the thing is is you know when you're being mic'd alive and you've got a, a big front of house system yeah you essentially just need a signal right you just need yeah. a tone it could just be like uh, almost like um just heads like a head kit like yeah. without the shells but 
course, you want to have shells. You know? Yeah, yeah. And again, it's like you doesn't know, it's need like, to project very far. Well, no, yeah. that that's the thing is you know we're we're as, as builders we're we're trying to build the most musical acoustic instrument sure. we can. Yeah. And I always find it funny because you know our job uh, is we're trying to make that drum say a tom for instance to sing. Yeah, It'd be super musical. Uh, what's the first thing you know? That happens when you get to, you know, a sound man. He's like, can you dial back that, yeah. the over, the overtone, excuse me, the sustain yeah. that, you know, yeah. and we end up killing it with, you know, right. gels and gels and, and right tape and, trying and stuff. To, so back to the point of, of the kick drum, just having a four inch shell in a lot of ways, I would think that would be like a front of house sound man's dream because yeah. you've got no overtones, nothing to feed back to the system. Right. You know? And low stage volume too, you know, it's yeah. not going to bleed into any other yeah. things. Yeah. 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 Um, on that point, there was one of the big things that came out of the early two thousands. There was a company out of California called orange County drums and percussion. I remember that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they were creating, uh, they're kind of like the godfather of, of just some of the drum creations yeah. that a lot of other manufacturers came up with, like the 20, 30, 40 ply yeah. snare drum shells, uh, the gigantic two or three inch air vents, you know, yeah. cut into the shells for projection because the sound's not only coming out of the top and the bottom, yeah. it's now being blown out the sides of, yeah, of right. the drum, right? But sound man's nightmare because yeah. the sound is just exploding into the kick into the uh floor tom mic yeah, and into right. you know into the high hat right. over yeah yeah acoustically sounds killer but you know, yeah so. um so you started um you said you used to have like retail and you had like a shop and everything and what how did you uh dial back to was it was it um in the when the economy in the 0708 did, did that make you pull back into a small shop or was it before that? Uh, you know, I th- again, you know, it's it, it's tough. I found it tough. Uh, maybe just being, again, in Canada, you know, lower population, fewer yeah. drummers. Um, uh, just trying to trying to make a living doing it, it's You know, it's a lot like being a drummer. You know, like if you're just a jazz drummer, it's tough to make a living just being a jazz drummer. That's right. why as we spoke about this earlier about just having your hand in like in all the different styles yeah, right. being hireable. I kind of looked at, you know, the drum shop that way is okay, I need lessons. Yeah. I need retail. Right. I need to take a little chunk just to out stay of stay above water, right? Right, you know? right. And I think just near the end for me having a shop was uh, a lot of it turned to electronic drums, believe it or not, you know, yeah. for the for the big um, chain that we have up here. Uh, Long and McQuaid's like a guitar center yeah, for you there. guys. Yeah, I yeah. great, great uh, retail uh, line. Um, you know, guys would tell me it's 70 30 electronic yeah. drums to acoustic drums. So it was a whole switch that happened 10, 15 years ago. And parents weren't as much getting their son or daughter a an acoustic you know beginner kit yeah, to take right. home start taking some lessons it was all a lot of it was I bet that's probably a lot of the sales from a drum store or from a music store or from young kids getting into music oh, yeah. and their parents saying okay you want these drums we'll you know buy them for you and we'll set them up in the garage or whatever absolutely yeah yeah because now there's see the the cheapest 
from what I remember, the, the cheapest electronic drum kit you could get, get 15, 20 years ago was still 1600 bucks. Right. I, I don't know why I specifically remember that, but you know, now you can, you can spend four or five, 600 bucks and have, you know, 20 really good drum kits in yeah. there and you put the headphones on little pads and, and drum pads or right. whatever. Yeah. And hook your iPhone up to it mm-hmm. and play along with songs. Like the, the technology has yeah. come a long way and they've kept it affordable for parents and, and I think drum students getting into drumming. Yeah. Right. So yeah, that, that was a big change for me because I was a custom drum, yeah. you know, repair guy, yeah. um, you know, custom builder. So you, when you made the switch to your small shop, you probably already had a clientele of the pretty, pretty yeah. lengthy yeah. that you, yeah. that, you're like, well, you know what? I'm just going to focus on making, repairing, and modifying drums and just keep keep that going. Yeah. Yeah. Keep, and, and lower the overhead, right? Lower the overhead. Yeah. So so being here, yeah, if I make 100 bucks or bring in 100 bucks, I keep 100 bucks, right? Like yeah, it's, right. So That's it's, true. And, and just the way the internet's gone. Yeah. You know, right. like it's, it's, I always laugh because I, I get people from around the world that are maybe flying into Toronto to meet family or, you know, and they'll say, can I come by your factory and see, you know, that's the perception worldwide, right? Is that, Oh, you must be making drums because all the stuff I put on the internet, social media, right. Those those are all drivers for, it's all close-ups of, of drums and machines and, you know, the the fact that I'm, you know, in a workshop on my property is, you know, so I would say, no, I'm not sure you want to come by the factory, you right. know, and find some some excuse. But I think it's cool that when yeah. I first pulled in here, we were walking around. The, your, your shop is out in the back of your house here. We were walking around your house, and I noticed in the backyard you had like a couple of things sitting out there in the weather. It's rainy here. And I thought, that's exactly what I thought about doing, you know, was yeah. taking some metal objects or something for like a patina look yeah. uh, and letting them natural weather corrosion happen. Yeah. And then you add those two. To a kit later and you may put a little bit of something on it just so it like i don't like a little bit of a coating or something but yep. you had that patina that natural patina that the weather did mm-hmm. and i noticed you had that you had a, a metal snare sitting out there yeah bra, a brass yeah. brass shell <clears throat> yeah i put That's a little so bit cool. of yeah i mean it, it's rainy season here uh so yeah like i said before it's yeah. it, it's you know i can put it out for three or four days yeah and and, and, this and it starts to turn already i've seen guitars turn. made there's a guitar yeah. maker in nashville i think that um that does like those guitar like the metal objects on the guitar the hardware yeah. is actually kind of rusty and like all worn out and yeah looking yeah. but they put some kind of coating on there some kind of lacquer or something mm-hmm. just to just to give it a little bit of a sheen yeah but it has da- deep down it when you see through it has that corrosion yeah. is, is in there it, it's a look that has become popular that distressed yeah. look even in guitars looks like it's been played for 30 years 40 yeah. years I know son. My son's got a uh, oh, he's got a flea bass. You know? Oh, really? Wow, I think, it, I think cool. it's a precision or uh, jazz bass, one of the two. But wow. it, it's all the body is all distressed. Like it looks like you know he's played it for wow forty yeah. years. Love right? That. Those are popular now. Yeah, those kind of stressy yeah. looking things. The kit that I play right now is a 
hybrid between Yamaha and Mapex, okay. and it's custom painted like steampunk. Oh, so cool. a, a painter out of a guy that does cars and motorcycles and stuff right. out of Nashville did it for me, and he just all airbrushed. Took him like four months to do it. Yeah, it is. It gets looks everywhere we go. People right. are like, whoa, look at that. You know, because right. it's, it's got gears and little pipes and things like that. Love to see. I'll have to look it up. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll show you some pictures here in a little bit. You would dig it. And you know, again, it's my favorite dr- drums from different kits. Right. Uh, the Yamaha 13-inch Tom, that first Tom, 13-inch Tom. Mm-hmm. Mapex, they have a 13-inch Tom, but it just wasn't as deep. It didn't have that recording series, that, that Yamaha recording series depth mm-hmm. and sound tone. Right. So I favored that. I have a Yamaha recording kit at home that I use for just sessions and stuff. But I wanted that in my live kit. I wanted that 13-inch goodness, you know. Right. So um, When you find them, yeah. right? When you find them, you... But I will say, you know. I discovered something recently, and I feel so stupid, but you're going to totally say, oh, yeah, well, everybody knows that. Yeah. But on that 13-inch Tom, it, the way the Yamaha mounts, the, the hardware goes through the drum, uh-huh. straight through, and I was choking it up on there and tightening it, and I just couldn't get the tone out of it. I was like, uh-huh. no tone, second Tom was tone, floor Tom was tone, and I just couldn't figure out why I was getting... Then one day, I pulled that Tom out from the hard from the mounting uh where that spike comes out and to where the spike wasn't sticking through the drum it was it was like out of the way and it changed it was like night and day and i could not believe that absolutely did you ever did you know did you already know that or did you Uh, you discover that yeah no you know because again you know as a manufacturer you're totally thinking about how can i bring as much what's what's killing the tone right killing the tone right um yeah, so so having anything intrude into the yeah. drum, uh, you know, the pipes or the, you know. I just thought a little piece of metal sticking through there is not going to stop the airflow, but it did. Mm-hmm. It made a difference between like when I, with the with that spike going all the way through the drum or yeah. halfway through it anyway. Yeah. And uh, it was like, doom, doom. When I moved it out and I moved that metal way back up in there, it was like, doom, right. doom. You know, I was right. like, wow. Yeah. And, you know, the same thing happens with floor toms. You, if you have regular floor tom legs with, yeah. the, with the rubber feet. And they're touching the And carpet. you put it on the yeah. Floor, yeah, floor. You can hold that floor tom up and just, doom, just yeah. you know, sustain till next Tuesday. Yeah. Put it on the floor. Gone. It's just totally choked. And that's why I think Pearl was the first company that came out with... A rubber foot that actually had a hole in it. Yeah, right. So I remember that. So when I was manufacturing drums back in the early 2000s, the big thing was to put floor toms, for instance, in the cradles. So it was a, it was a cradle with springs, and the the drum sat on the cradle, riding on four springs. Wow. And then really? the legs attached to, you put the mount from the floor tom uh, shell. Onto this bracket, and then the legs. So I remember that. Yeah. So yeah, the drum was kind of goes all the way around the drum type yeah, thing. Yeah, 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 I do remember that. And that brought all the body and sustain back into the drum, sort of. Yeah. And but they're expensive, and on the road, you know, guys are always complaining about certain things coming loose and yeah, vibrating. Right. You know, doing a recording and something was rattling and touch. So there's a lot of little small, you know, parts that could affect. Yeah. You know, rec- recordings, for instance, where you hear every little vibration yeah. and. And then Pearl came out with those feet, and I thought yeah, it was a great. Those grace. foam feet, yep. or, or, or well, they had now they had the foam, those things now that you can buy. They're a little round, about the size of a soda can, and it has a hole. And Booty shakers, foam. I think. I think it is. Yeah, yeah, it's like a foam, and you just set the floor tom on top of those. So that was the feet. first. That They're was like the, house shoes. <laughs> that, yeah, right. Yeah. That was the first thing that they. I, I remember they came out with years ago. Like if you were in the studio, 
and you wanted that sustained. Guys were buying two or three inch foam. Yeah. And putting that yeah. under the floor tom. Sure, right? absolutely. Yeah, because as soon as it touches. So going back to that spike going into the tom. Yeah. You know, that's why I think Gary Gogger came out with the first rim system back in the 70s or 80s. I remember the um, yeah right uh-huh, yeah, the rims yeah the basically what what it, for those system. that don't know the rim system it, instead of putting hardware on the actual drum shell itself it actually has these little three clamps that clamp to the rim of the drum and suspend it from the rim basically so you're not actually touching the the drum itself you're just right. it's, it's like you're holding it with your hand you're holding the the rim up someone probably did that they said hey how can they held the drum up with their fingers and hit it and they go how can you yeah. make that a thing <laughs> right <laughs> they said well uh, well you got to clamp it to something so okay well clamp it to the rim yeah. you know so yeah. here hold this <laughs> yeah. well, i play this four minute song though yeah i think he was the pioneer and all that and yeah. I, I think he, i've had some conversations with him and i think he even i think he was at the nam show with with uh with the product and he had some major manufacturers i won't name any names but come up to him and go you cost a lot of companies a lot of money right because right? now everybody had to reformat how they were going to and then you know over the years you see you know all the major manufacturers have got their own you know yeah like yamaha uh, has got the yes system yeah which i love it's held by two bolts and but doesn't affect the the the, the drum tone right so yeah it's a no i I knew about that because I, i have done i've teched a fair amount of uh records and so it's your job to you know obviously get get the tone and the sustain and the all that stuff right so speaking of records um have you heard the story did you ever hear the story about how blaine and the frank sinatra sessions and stuff like that and what he had to do with the kit and all that i I don't you will love this you will love this i'm going to tell my listeners and you at the same time this story that i heard Hal Blaine was fixing to do a session with, he had been contracted to do a session with Frank Sinatra. And he had heard a rumor that Frank Sinatra does not like to do second and third takes. He's just a one take guy. Don't, don't, you know, slow down the session for any reason and have to do it over. He doesn't like to do things over. Right. Have it down and do it one time and then he, he's going to be gone. Um, so in fear of that, he goes, he's Hal Blaine thinking like, I don't want to be the one and I think he literally said this in an interview. I don't want to be the one be- that the engineer says, you know, hey, there was a drum that squeaked or there was a weird noise. We have to do it again. Hal said, I'm going to do everything I can. So he sent his drum, one of his drum kits, his main kit or whatever. He had several to an engineer guy. And he said, take this whole thing apart. Every part that's metal touching wood, anything, put a rubber grommet, a rubber uh, washer in there and make sure that there's no... Looseness, vibrations, noises, squeaks, anything like that. Make sure it's all completely. So he took that whole kit apart and all the little, where the hardware fits onto the drum, he put rubber, a little rubber piece on there to Mm -hmm. keep it from rubbing. And, um, And so I think back, you know, to when I got my first Yamaha recording kit and I had to, I was doing some cleaning them or doing something to it and I took the hardware off and... I was looking at inside the hardware, you know, and I saw these little rubber grommets in there. And I wondered what if maybe that whole Hal Blaine story was kind of like maybe Yamaha heard about that or because, you know, recording series. What makes it was, I was curious, what makes the Yamaha recording series besides the tone and all that stuff? You know, what makes it? Why is it the recording series and not like live? Mm-hmm. Why do they what do they do to it different to record to make records? Yeah. And I thought maybe that 
how Blaine's story leaked into Yamaha somehow. And they said, well, what can we do to make our studio kits more quiet, more, you know, where it would rub or make a rattle or mm -hmm. something like that. I know uh, one of the big problems with the earlier drums is, yeah, you've got a hollow casing for the lug. Yeah. And there's a swivel nut what we call a swivel nut that goes up that receives a tension rod. Yeah, that you can actually replace if it got stripped out or something sure. like that. Or it broke, sort of floats yeah. in there. And that can rattle. That can make a rattly sound. Well, to hold that up yeah. in place, they used to put springs underneath yes. them. Right, which could rattle or buzz. That's right. What, yeah. So guys would have to, you know, because you'd, you'd hit a floor tom or, or rack tom and you could... Especially in the studio. Yeah, like just a little, 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 little bit much. of a... So guys were taking all the lugs off and packing them with cotton or, right, to, to yeah. stop the vibration. So, yeah, that was probably... Yeah, uh, Yamaha him. probably said, well, let's make a kit, a series kit, yeah. a series of kits that is just for recording that yeah. we go through the extra steps that you yeah. really wouldn't care about live too it's much. It's a great point. But I, yeah. in the studio, it's so discriminating, you know, sound-wise. Absolutely. An engineer might say, ah, that sounds, that's a weird sound. Like, yeah. Can you and, fix that? And if you had a great drum track, yeah, how bad would you feel, right? Knowing yeah. that you got to make Frank do it again. Like, that was because a great <laughs> take, man. That was the best. That was yeah. one in a million, except yeah. for that sound. We were in the studio doing a record one time, and uh, um, we ended a song, and there was, it sounded perfect. It was great. And there was a guitar, keyboard player, guitar player, I can't remember, that was in the control room. And he goes, wait, listen. And it was the tail end of the song. And it was like, yeah. And it's like, you hear the cymbals ring and stuff. And you could hear this kind of like pulsing. It was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, he, and nobody caught it but this one guy. And I can't remember his name, but he was a keyboard player or something. I think he played acoustic guitar. I think he was an acoustic player. Okay. And he said, listen, listen. And, and we listened and we played it back again. And we listened and played it back again. And he goes, what is that? He goes, and we started soloing things. And so finally he soloed the drums and they go, there it is. And, and we listened to it again and again, probably about 10 more times and go, listen to the very end. And there was literally a ride, a crash cymbal that was touching oh, ever so gently some other little rim or a, a, another symbol and it was kind of going yeah. it's kind of doing this you can imagine the symbol sort of floating and kind mm -hmm. of like wagging back and forth and it was just barely touching that thing so there's oh. subtle sounds in there that oh, just yeah. like will kill kill you if, but you did it again we had to do it again because <laughs> I, had to, I think i had to punch the ending or something but yeah, but anyway, yeah. yeah. But, yeah uh, oh no i mean yeah i've spent enough time in the studio not as so much as a player but as teching and yeah yeah it gets really specific right yeah big big thing for me was always drum sustain yeah right i really had to come up with some creative ways to you know some guys will open up the drum and put you know six or seven cotton balls and you know because you know you hit the drum and you don't want it ringing till next tuesday you want it to yeah dome and off yeah right right, right. um I mean, I heard so, an interview a long time ago with Stuart Copeland, and he said that when he first started out, he was a trombone player or something. And when he first started out, he first hit a set of drums, and he was like, decided he wanted to be a drummer. And Tama drums, he said, they had a ring to them, a sustain. They came alive when you hit them. Yeah. Would you agree with that? Would you I agree totally with like agree. something about Tama yeah. that was just the tone, the sustain, the the how I long know what it is. they rang you know he yep. said that totally turned him on and he said that's what I want so he I think he stayed with Tama for yeah ever. they 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 cut their bearing edges uh, a little differently from the outside which to me on a technical le level lends itself to like a broader yeah. darker 
tone that everybody's trying to get out of their drums, right? That, yeah, that right. beefiness, right? Tama always had, uh, yeah, because I did have a Yamaha recording custom, but also had the superstars and yeah. the swing stars. And yeah, Tama definitely had a, yeah. their own little thing going on. How so. important do you think it is for, I know you're going to agree with this, but I was like, how important do you think it is for a drummer to have a totally unique sound. I mean, and how do you do that? How do you, Ooh, from a kit standpoint? It's a great question. I mean, you know, cause like you could do, you could set up, I mean, you could set up two snare drums with no bottom heads and make them like timbales and Ooh. set them on the left of your kit. And that would be like, whoa, man, that's so cool, man. He does that thing with those two snares or what that timbale thing. Yeah. And that would make you sort of different than another drummer or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, you know, it's, that's a, Tough question. I mean, I'm always looking at different uh, setups, and I'm just going, you know, what are these like? There's trends that happen, yeah, right? right. The side snare drum is is a real trend. Like having the popcorn a deep, snare thing, or, well, or, or even pop, the deep one, or yeah, right. opposite, right? Having yeah. the the deep thuddy wet paper bag sound to the left. The one where you take the the, the head and you cut a ring out of it, and yep. you stick the ring on there, and detune it, it totally kills all the yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so so I think, you know, we're always trying to just have something that, that sets us apart or start a trend. I mean, I don't know. It's uh, I also think about the fact that, you know, maybe a lot of guys, maybe producers don't want drummers to be different. As funny as that right, sounds, yeah. you know, like we're trying to create our own voice, but sometimes that's not what, say, required for. Yeah. There was a guy that used to play with Paula Cole. Um, and he had some sort of djembe set up with a some kind of snare mechanism sitting on top, and so he didn't play like a drum set per se, but you could tell he was a drummer. Yeah. And he created this whole like like I noticed some of these really different setups. Yeah. But they're so unique that they might not be applicable for uh, right for a regular gig or something. Yeah. yeah. So, so there's that balance between balance. your drummer. And there's a balance between I want to serve the song. And I want to serve the artist, but I also want to have an identity, you know? How do you do that? That's just like, how can they all happen, you know? But it does. Yeah. No, I, again, there's, I mean, you take somebody like Terry Basio. Yeah. You know, who's right. just, there's a guy, a pioneer, if you will, that just had a musical idea in his head and he saw it through, right? Yeah. And like, talk about being different, you yeah. know, unique. Uh, and musical. I mean, the guy's creating his own little, you know, pieces through yeah. this whole drum right. kit. Yeah, I don't know. That that's a tough one because you know we're always uh, used to delivering what guys, what people are expecting, yeah. like, like a good drum sound, good cymbals, nothing too weird. Um, so you know, it's uh, yeah. How do you? How do you? I think the out? best advice would be in my opinion, would be if you're young and you want to have an identity and you want to have a sound that you also want to play professionally and all that, serve the song and all that, is put a band together of like-minded people that you know that you can get along with and be that right. that character, that sound, that whatever you're trying to invent with behind the kit, may build a band around it. Does that make sense? Totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. yeah. And then and just serve that song, serve that band and make, make it your... You know, if you can find like-minded people and make that sound your thing. Yeah, I, I, I'm sure there's there's uh, examples out there where guys have gone in and played a certain way, and the producer probably said, "No, no, just keep it simple or keep it more like." Right. Yeah. Well, I'm trying to I'm trying to be different. No, you, you save the yeah. being different for your own game. Exactly. Right now, yeah. we're gonna yeah. focus on 
serving the tune, yeah. right? Or whatever. So imagine so, the police without Stuart Copeland, if it was another drummer or another, just a, you know, that played simpler, sim- that didn't play like Stuart Copeland. Think about how, how many battles he got into. Uh, right. With, yeah. with the producers and probably with yeah. the band, because so many times he said, they wanted me to play tune four because yeah. I was trying to find everything that still worked with the tune yeah. that worked around tune, the typical yeah. tune That's form. interesting. And people would, would catch people. Yeah. He's I, he, one of my favorite drummers. Yeah, and and I think probably for that reason, right? It's because yeah. he makes us think as drummer, like there are times where I'm recording and I always go into the mindset of, of, Oh geez, I hear this drummer. What would this drummer do on this tune? Yeah. You know, uh, Manu was another guy. Manu Cachet, yeah. Yeah, they just didn't always play tune four, but danced around it. Omar yeah. Hakim. Musical, very musical and very percussive. Very musical, yeah. 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 And again, going back to something we talked about earlier, you know, my first introduction to learning tunes was were all those drum machine tunes. And thinking, that's how you play drums. I got to yeah. play strict and consistent. And then my world opened up as I found these different drummers, right? Yeah. Stuart Copeland, Manu Cachet. Um, you know, and realize that, oh, okay, you can still serve the tune, but still be unique yeah. and, and colorful. And you have uh, to know when that moment is. Yeah, that, there's a there's a yeah, skill in that of sure. knowing when to serve the song and when. Okay, when is it my turn? When with that and tastefully, yeah, you know, tastefully. Yeah. Another thing that you know, a few guys said to me on recording sessions is create a moment. Yes, exactly. Create a moment like in a, in like the a song. movie director. Like you, you create those scenes yep. that people talk about. Yep. No, yeah. not overdoing it. Yeah. Because if you, you know, it's almost like you know hitting a vibra slap more than one time. I always mm-hmm. make a joke about no, a vibra <laughs> yeah. slap is only allowed to be played once in an yeah, evening, right. Or once on a song. After don't that, don't kill it. Just, po- just right. use it just sparingly. Yeah. yeah. It's funny, but it's also it gives. I mean, to me, writing a, a song is always a is about giving the listener something new from beginning to end. That's whether you'll do a half course the first time, um, you know, uh, and and going back to a drumming example, you know, coming out of a drum fill and and playing the accent, not on one, but on two. Yeah. How many times have we we heard that as drummers? It kind of wakes people up for a second and they go, whoa, what was that? Right. Because you're just falling into that groove of listening to the tune and boom, all of a sudden something like that wakes you up and it's like, or... You know, you're expecting the crash to be on one and, oh, they did an extra yeah. two bars. Yeah. And that, you know what I mean? Yeah. That's To me, that's great writing. Is, yeah. You is, know, our guitar player, Michael, he brought up a good point to me. Uh, we were talking one time and he said that he notices that when you listen to music, he's a big studier of music and sounds and especially drums and things like that. Oh. He'll say that when you have a drum beat that is going the same and it's very consistent and very, very regular, your brain will actually tune that out as if you don't hear it anymore. Right. Unless something changes and it either breaks time or you do a you know a little you know syncopated kick in there, yeah. it kind of wakes you up and goes, oh, there's the there they is, there's the drums. Right. You yeah, know, that's what I mean. Wild. If you're just going along listening to the tune yeah. because it's so linear or you know. Yeah. Um, and I always save those times for not not the accent times, but the the the, the deep pocket for when there's a solo or something going on. It's not me. Yeah. And I don't. I don't really want them to pay attention to me, but there's something else going on and I want to point my finger at somebody else. I'll fall into a deep pocket and I'll just play very consistent and don't change anything and let them have the moment, you know? Well, you know, and, and yeah, as a player, that's as a drummer, I would say, especially there's something you have to learn is, you know, I always, uh, 
parallel, you know, playing music like a conversation. Yeah, right. Right? Yeah. Like, okay, somebody's talking right now. Yeah. You know, uh, I'm not just going to start talking. Over and being you. a listener, being a good listener more than you play. Listen more right. than you play. Yeah. yeah. So back right. to your point, guys yeah. doing a guitar solo, you're going to maybe take mm-hmm. the spotlight off yourself yeah. doing anything that would take away or interfere with yeah. what he's doing, with right? The attention away from them. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. So what in your kits, your drum kits, um, what when you started going full time making drums and things like that, did did you have to make the decision, okay, what am I just gonna make obviously you don't want to just make regular drum kits. What's gonna be special? What's gonna be different about your drum kits? What why are people gonna go, Oh, get those U drum kits because they are blah blah blah. Did you have to make that decision or do you just kind of continue making great sounding drums? You know, I mean, with a custom thing, again, it, it's, it's, it's like listening to the drummer. What do you want? What, what, what do you need for this tour or this record? You know, that's why we have So attention to detail would be your thing. That was, that's yeah. your signature. I think so. Yeah. I think, and again, being a drummer and having taken drums into the studio and see like you know i'll take the cherry bomb into a session thinking this drum is going to kill and it's in the room it sounds amazing yeah we got to talk about the cherry bomb because i yeah. on your website that seems to be the prominent thing that, that that's your rock star that's your kind of that was yeah that was a moniker drum for us yeah i brought it out back in 2008 not just the and, color because i'm looking at it right now and it's got this cherry red this this beautiful uh Almost, uh, um, I don't know, Cimarron. Uh, it's this red, deep red, shiny, not apple, not apple. I can't describe it. It's yeah. just beautiful. I call it, yeah, I call it cherry red. I mean, cherry red, know. yeah. Uh, the drum had a little, took about a year to kind of come up with, the, you know, we're looking at the drum right now. It took a year yeah. to come up with that. It, I, I really wanted a drum that was versatile. Um, but see the era I come from, same era that you come from, those big fat drums, yeah, right? The right. wallet on the snare drum. Mm-hmm. Like it's become kind of in fashion again, right? Yeah. Like back in my day, sound guy put his trusted me with his wallet, put a piece of oh, gaffer tape I've across. I've totally it, done that before. Right? Yeah, yeah. And this yeah. big fat and through the front of the house, it just yeah. sounded like all those 80 snare drums that we know. Yeah. So I was trying to create a full body snare drum because that's what I want to hear. Um so it's wood. is it a wood snare? So that's aluminum. No. Aluminum. Yeah, ah, there yeah. we go. Now it, we're starting to get to the secret yeah, of thro- the sound. It right. throws everybody because you see it's it, it's been sanded on the outside. So it's got yeah. kind of a, a It's grain. like a brushed aluminum that it could almost be a wood grain. Yeah. Almost. I mean, you almost see some yeah. lines there. Yeah, so it's an aluminum snare. Aluminum snare, three millimeters thick. So it's got a little bit more. Like aluminum's already soft. Right, you think about the like the Acrolyte, the Ludwig Acrolyte. Sure, yeah. it's got to be one of my favorite drums. Sure, you know? I have Aaron, one. Yeah, I love it. Right, Kenny Arnoff used them all on all those early John Cougar recordings, yeah, and it's just got this fat, breathy, you know, just a mixture of of, of different uh, characteristics all in one drum. So when I got the shell, I went, oh, looks okay. Again, the statics. Yeah. was a was a big was a big deal here in town there's uh an anodizer believe it or not five yeah. minutes from here ah so it was all meant to be the stars aligned for the yeah ball. yeah so i took the shell up to the anodizer and looked at the different colors it was gold and blue and green I go man i really like that deep red so i got them to do the shell in red brought it back put the hardware on it went uh ah, it's still just okay chrome hardware in a red shell 
Maybe, was the sound there or, or the sound was there. sound was there you're just looking for aesthetics yeah no yeah at this right. point yeah so um if i can reach over here and grab it <laughs> yeah just Look it at over. that! Wow, is that a thirty strand or forty? So yeah, good eyes. That's a that's a thirty strand. Thirty strand, yeah. The the first one I made was six by fourteen because I was trying to find one drum for production. So when we, for those that don't know, when we say strand, sorry to interrupt. Uh, uh, strands like the snares on the bottom, the snare, snare strainer that goes across that makes the ch sound. Um, that normally they're what about 14 20 like 20 20 yeah 20 sorry 20 would be the normal music store high school whatever you want to call it normal yeah. meat and potatoes snare then you start to get wider as you want more uh snare sound want it to project a little more mm -hmm. um and i found the 30 i used to i did a 40 strand for a long time that was a little too much so then yeah. i i was just recently i found a 30 strand and i was like that was the magic yeah so well you also have to have the the, the snare beds cut for say a 42 strand which oh, is really? what yeah. gretch used right oh, right so you know um wow. i don't have an example right now but but each snare drum on the bottom side of the bearing edge has a bed cut out. a lot of drummers don't yeah. know that yeah it's actually like a little swoop cut yeah. into mm -hmm. And that's so so the wires are pulled into the head. If you yes. pulled it straight across and it would down, lift it would up bow. a little bit. Yeah, it would right. bow a little bit. Yeah. So you wouldn't have that interaction between the drum head and the wires. So yeah, that's why. You, so point being is, if you put forty-two strand wires on a snare bed that's cut for twenty strands, you've got all these wires sitting outside of the bed, and that's you end true. it, it yeah. ends up okay. buzzing, kind of a. So I'm t I'm knowing right now that I need to modify my. <laughs> my mapex snare because it's it's not cut for a yeah. 30. So wow. this this is the second generation. I call this a cherry bomb 2.0, right? 2.0. So actually it used to have die cast hoops, um, a trick throw off, 42 strand wires. Again, I was trying to create a versatile snare drum, but that fat yeah. sound that So they I can go to your website and look at uh and it's uh udrum, is it udrum.com or something? Udrum.ca udrum.ca yeah, and check out yeah. the cherry bomb yeah. and you'll see what we're talking about you'll see this thing and maybe is there an audio example as well on there like a way to uh, yeah listen to on, it? on instagram and facebook i've got uh, me just playing the cherry yeah. bomb just yeah. in the workshop here and yeah. that's kind of been like I, from what i understand drummers all across canada and u.s i, I love they'll they love your cherry bomb yeah thanks well you know funny story behind it is i ended up doing an endorsement with a guy in South Africa, a young guy, 20 years old, named Kobus. He was a YouTube sensation, like, you know, uh, 15 years ago. Like He, he wow. got into YouTube at the ground floor, rented out his uh, church for the weekend, got four cameras, mic'd up his drums, and he used to do series where he'd play along with popular uh, pop Ooh, tunes under wow. Kelly Clarkson. Nice. Anyways, he created these series, and yeah, he had a couple hundred thousand followers on uh on Facebook and anyway, somebody said, you got to endorse this guy. So I did a deal with him where I sent him a, a cherry bomb. And at the end of his um, videos, which garnered like hundreds of millions of views. Wow, that's great. Cause he, yeah, he was one yeah. of the first guys you see it all the time now, but he was the first guy to do it that I know of. And at the end of his video, and this is when we had .com, it was, he, he faded in www.udrum.com. Yeah. And everybody, all these 15 through 20 year old kids loved him. And were, I was getting email after oh email. God. So well, I was sending these. selling the crap out of him, man. The, yeah. The only <laughs> issue was it was a little bit out of the um, price range of 15 year olds. Oh, right. That's right? true. That's true. Yeah. So I'd get calls from Malaysia, Australia. How, how much is one of your cherry bombs, if you don't mind me asking? So the 2.0 is 795 Canadian. 
I see. Yeah. So that's that's still cheaper than a, like a Noble and Cooley snare, which are like in the nine hundreds, yeah, nine hundred dollar range or but something. But that would like be, that. you know, I don't know what that would be in um, U.S. dollars. That would uh, five range. Yeah, five, I think so. Five yeah, about five hundred. Like so that. for a five. boutique snare drum, uh, yeah, so I don't think it's a lot of money. The, the the big thing is I sell it direct. I want to sell fewer drums. Yeah. And I used to sell them through the big music chain up here, but I decided. It's like a guitar player buying a really good Strat or something, or a yeah. really good, you know, Gretsch guitar. Yes. Yeah. 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 So, so I, I I got rid of the diecast hoops, which are pretty heavy duty uh, yeah. hoops, and went with the triple flanged. Wow. And again, that's just to make it a little bit more versatile. And then I cut from forty-two strands to thirty strands. Yeah. So you know, again, you just want that full, wet tone is what i'm going yeah. for right and then aesthetically you see that on the snare drum rack in a store when they were in stores yeah and it just kind of jumped out at you so that's yeah. why i want right. the candy apple red hardware and the so it took about a year to get the the sound and the look and come up with a name as soon as i saw it you know with it being red Very cool. just came up with the cherry bomb and wow the rest is history as they yes. say i guess <laughs> the cherry bomb snare you gotta yeah. check it out yeah um, and the funny thing is, is, is Mapex came out with their Cherry Bomb snare drum a few years later. So oh, there's really? a little, little, oh. little confusion there. Wow. Uh, that was kind of mean of them. <laughs> I would say so, yeah. Yeah. I, I think it, they made it out of cherry wood. Oh, I see, yeah. So yeah. that was, they call it a Cherry Bomb. But, yeah. Well, man, Paul, it's been great talking to you. You as well, yeah. And uh, I won't take up too much more of your time because I know you got a lot of drums to make here. Yeah. There's, and there's I love stuff your shop. Do. I wish I could just make my own kit in here today. I was like, <laughs> okay, I'm going to start with the kick drum. Uh, well, anyway, thanks for letting me come in here and invade your territory. Yeah. This has been Keats Rainwater and Paul Dickinson here in uh, Burlington, Ontario. We'll see you next time. See you.